Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter three, beginning with verse 11. Uh, If you're new, and I know that there are, uh, even in the coronavirus season, new people joining us today, uh, we wanna welcome you. We've been in a series in Acts. uh, Today is our 12th week, and um, in in this series, our, our sermon is entitled Refreshing Repentance. As we look in Acts, and as it is our practice, please stand with me wherever you are in the sanctuary or at home. Stand with me as your act of worship. For we read and we receive God's holy and life-giving word, uh, thankful that he is a God who has revealed himself to us. So hear now the reading of God's word, beginning in Acts 3, verse 11, reading until chapter 4, verse 4. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw that he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was decided, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and are the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Friends, would you join me in prayer once more? Father, as you are one who reveals yourself to us. We know that it's not upon our own discovery that we understand the truths in your word, but by the gift of your spirit who illuminates our eyes and our hearts to give us understanding that transcends beyond our mind, but connects with our hearts. And so as you speak to us, God, we pray that we, your church, would listen. We would listen humbly. We would listen obediently. And we would listen unto your glory. Do this and be honored In the preaching of your word, we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, today's passage takes place right on the heels of the story we looked at last week. And last week, we talked about the lame beggar at the beautiful gate whom, uh, who called out to Peter and John and who was healed. And as you would expect after a miracle like this, what happens is that he's healed and everybody who has seen it now rushes. This is a big deal. You see a man healed, a man who has been lame from birth for 40 years healed. You want to see what this is. And so Peter, as the opportunistic guy he is, seizes this opportunity. He preaches the gospel. And we're told here in verse four at the end of chapter four that about 5,000, the the number who were saved came to about 5,000. Now that doesn't mean 5,000 came to be saved. We gotta do a little bit of math here. 3,000 were saved at the end of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And then now after those who were saved in this sermon, they come to about 5,000. So that means 2,000 people were saved in hearing this sermon. Now that is miraculous, 2,000 people being saved. And the question is, you know, what made Peter's sermon so good and so great that 2,000 people came to faith? And it's interesting because when you look at the sermon, the sermon is all about repentance. It's all about uh, confronting people of their sin and then calling upon them in repentance. And we know that, you know, often if that is done today, it's not popularly received. I used to do campus ministry down on Temple University. And some of you who went to Temple may know, uh, you know, those preachers who stand in front of the, the library who preach uh, your sin and they preach repentance. And, you know, they have signs sometimes listing every sin, you know, you could possibly think of and then preaching repentance in Jesus. And I've never seen someone, you know, come before him, uh, fall on their knees and cry out for Jesus. You know, we all tend to judge somebody like that. But what's interesting here is here's Peter standing before thousands of men. He's preaching this, you did this sin and you did this sin. Repent. 2,000 people are falling on their faces, crying out for Jesus. What is happening? That's the theme of this sermon that Peter's preaching. It's repentance. And so that's the theme of our sermon today. Here's the gospel truth, a one sentence summary. Repent of your sins and be refreshed in God's grace and mercy. Repent of your sins and be refreshed in God's grace and mercy. Now, I was looking back at previous manuscripts and I've deprived you as a church. For two months, I have not given you a three-point sermon. I am sorry. So to make up for that, I will give you three points today. They are the nature of sin, the hope of repentance, and the promise of refreshment. The nature of sin, the hope of repentance, and the promise of refreshment. So let's begin with this first point, the nature of sin. Our passage begins in verse 11. Peter's sermon begins in verse 12. But the climax of the sermon is verse 19. When Peter shouts, and this is the climax of it, you can tell he's animated. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This is the peak of the mountain. This is the climax of the sermon, the call to repent. And the question is, how did Peter get there? How did he ascend this mountain and get to this peak? And he gets there by exposing the sins of the people and therefore their need to repent of those sins and receive forgiveness. And so what are those sins that Peter is in their face calling out? And you'll be a bit surprised at 
what he says is their sins. He begins in verse 13. Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And finally, in verse 15, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. These are some serious accusations that Peter is leveling at the people. And you know he's full of the Holy Spirit because what kind of man would have this kind of boldness and courage to stand before people and say, you killed Jesus, you handed him over. And yet miraculously, by calling out their sins, he leads them to the Savior. Well, when we look at the sins, what is Peter leveling against them? You actually learn about the nature of sin. And there are two very surprising things we learn about sin. Things that I don't think we often think about, but we need to think about because this is how the Bible is telling us about sin. The first is that sin has a corporate aspect to it. Sin has a corporate aspect to it. You know, from our historical and cultural standpoint, we tend to reduce sin only to individual personal wrongdoings. And when we view sin as only something I do, something I've personally committed, we shrink from what the Bible is presenting to us about sin. Right? This is one of the blind spots that we have from a modern Western worldview of when we read the scripture. Now, what do I mean by this? Consider this. Who is Peter talking to? Who is the sermon for? Verse 12, men of Israel why do you wonder at this? So, so Peter is standing before a crowd of thousands of Jewish men. They flocked him. They've seen this miracle. They're flocking to him. They're, what's all this about? He has the audience of over 2,000 people, right? 2,000 men, so probably more women and children. And in front of this large crowd, Peter has the audacity, the courage to say against them this accusation, you all killed Jesus, He's not trying to win a popularity contest here. And the question for us is, how in the world could Peter level such an accusation? How dare he say such a thing? You guys killed Jesus. Well, any one of these people could have said to him, well, actually, first, the Roman soldiers killed Jesus. They're the ones who crucified him, not me. Second, Pilate was the one who handed him over, even though he knew he was innocent, not me. Third of all, it was the Jewish leaders who set up um, this false accusations against him. It's the Jewish leaders who conspired. It was the Jewish leaders who were threatened by him, not me. Any number of people in this crowd could have rejected the accusation. Maybe some of them were even thinking, what are you talking about, Peter? I wasn't even in town that weekend. How could you say I killed Jesus? Some of them could have said, I live on the other side of Galilee. You know, we get news like much later. I only heard about Jesus two months ago. Any one of them could have said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not responsible. And yet Peter with apostolic authority says to them, you are all guilty of this great injustice in murdering the son of God. You all need to repent. It's a crazy accusation. What's even crazier is, That's what the people do. They repent of their sins. And Luke tells us this. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
what's going on here? Well, the Bible is describing something for us called corporate guilt or corporate responsibility. None of us here, if you've grown up in the church, need to be convinced that sin is individual, sin is personal, that you need to repent of your sins, I need to repent of my sins. But you also need to understand the Bible is equally clear that sin is also corporate. Sin is not limited only to individual moral failure, but there are implications of sin on a whole body, a whole community. Now it's hard for us to swallow being again, 21st century Americans. But you have to realize that in the history of the world, most of the world for most of history would have heard this and understood it. For them, this was not a difficult concept to swallow. You see, even though these men had not literally participated in killing Jesus, even if they had not been there, even if they had never seen or heard Jesus and only heard about Jesus, because they are men of Israel and Israel killed Jesus, they knew they were guilty too. And that's why they respond in repentance rather than rejection. Hearing Peter accuse them and saying, well, I didn't do any of that. This idea of corporate guilt is all over the Bible. And it's surprising. It's a little offensive to our modern sensibilities when we want to think so uh, individualistically. But let me give you one more example of this. Uh, In the book of Joshua, there's a very famous story, probably the most famous story in Joshua, where uh, Israel is going to go march out against the enemies at Jericho. Jericho. And God says, you know, march around the city walls and then blow the trumpet, you know, and everything in the walls are going to fall. And then he says this, he says, when you attack the city, what I want you to do is destroy everything. Don't take anything for yourself, destroy everything. Well, here's what we read then in Joshua chapter seven, verse one, after they've defeated Jericho. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. What's really interesting here is one man's sin is considered as if the whole nation broke faith. And thus, because of one individual sin, God's anger is invited on the whole people of Israel and they end up losing the next battle. So they go to fight the city, I, and they lose the battle. And Joshua is so confused because he said, we just won. We just beat Jericho. How are we losing to this other city? And so he begins to seek uh, to identify the cause. Why did we lose? And so he separates the tribe by tribe and realizes it's this tribe's fault. And within the tribe, clan by clan, and says, okay, it's this clan's fault. And then individual by individual, man by man. And he realizes that it's come down to this man, Achan. And so he confronts Achan. And this is what Achan then says. He says, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Could we turn? Yeah. So truly, I, listen, truly, I, have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. So he understands this is not a national sin. It's a personal sin. I'm the one who did this wrongdoing. But do you know what happens next? Achan owns up to his personal sin. And do you know what Israel then does? They take Achan, they take his daughters, they take his sons, they drag them out of the city and they stone them all to death. Corporate guilt. One man's sin that other people didn't do 
and yet the guilt is shared by all. Now, let's go back to Acts 3. If we're being technical, who of the Jews was most responsible for Jesus' death? The priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all of the religious leaders and teachers. And yet Peter somehow is able to stand before every man of Israel and say, this is your sin. You are guilty. You need to repent. And here's the ironic, offensive, surprising twist in all of this. The people who we would say are most responsible for the sin, they don't repent. And the people who we think shouldn't repent are the ones who repent and are saved. So after Peter calls them to repentance, here's what Luke then tells us. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the guard and the Sadducees came upon them greatly convicted. No, greatly annoyed. And they arrested them and put them in custody. Those who we think should repent, refuse to repent. Those who didn't repent, repent. But many of those who had heard the word believed. You see, the nature of sin is certainly individual. The Bible is clear on this. What we're not so clear on is the fact that the Bible is actually calling this corporate aspect of sin to our attention. And this is why in one of the most famous uh, passages revealing God is Exodus 34. Some of you may know where God himself is, you know, I'm a God and you know, I'm uh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We all love that part, but we don't like this part where God then says, who will by no means clear the guilty. Who are the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is God saying? Your father's sin, but because of his guilt, God in his holiness and justice will punish not only the guilty father, but his children and his children's children to the third and fourth generation. The Bible is describing for us the corporate aspect of guilt. So how seriously do you take sin? Do you take it seriously enough to admit my individual personal sin? But do you also make room to make room for the corporate element of sin? That's the first surprising thing about sin. Here's the second surprising thing about sin. Ignorance does not excuse guilt. Ignorance doesn't excuse guilt. In uh, Acts 3 verse 17, Peter says this. He says, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. And here, what we learn is that sin is not just about things we're aware of and things we mean to do. Sin also includes things we're not aware of and we don't mean to do, right? Sin is not only what we're aware of and what we mean to do, but even the things we're not aware of and the things we don't mean to do. You know, someone like me, if you level this kind of accusation, I'm quick to respond, right? How can I be guilty of something that I didn't even know I did or something that I didn't even mean to do? And we claim ignorance should excuse any guilt. But when Peter says this, it's basically as if he was anticipating their objection. Peter's going to say, hey, hey, I, okay, I know you're going to say that you acted ignorantly, but let me just tell you right now, even though you didn't know what was happening, that doesn't mean you're not guilty. It's still sin. You still need to repent. Right? Peter doesn't assume ignorance excuses guilt. So we shouldn't assume that God believes ignorance excuses guilt. Or God is just, he's too holy. If you take God's holiness and his justice seriously, then, then you'll know he can't just say, well, you know, I guess if you didn't know, I mean, sorry, yeah, you know, it's okay. All of us need to understand this. You know, when I was um, 
about five or six, I was at the grocery store uh, with my mother, and I'll never forget this incident because it just, it's just stuck. It's seared on my head. Um, we were walking around. We were doing shopping. She was pulling, uh, pushing around the cart, and uh, out of the corner of, the, uh, of her eye, she sees me taking a piece of candy out of my pocket and popping it in my mouth. And, you know, my mom, she's, she's quick. I don't know. She has eyes all over her head. And she stopped, and she turns around. She says, where'd you get that candy? And I said, uh, from the free candy station. She said, free candy? What are you talking about? Show me. I was a little shocked. She didn't know at the free candy station. So I take her to the aisle of the grocery store where there are these, uh, there's this whole aisle of individually wrapped pieces of candy that, you know, you could take as much as you wanted. And I had taken a whole pocket full of it and was just helping myself, you know, in this what seemed like a forever trip to the grocery store. Well, you know, as it turns out, you could probably guess uh, it's not free candy. Right? I just wasn't paying for it. Um, because it was the type of candy you can, when you go to Wegmans, you go to these grocery stores, you see them, what do you do? You put them in clear plastic black bags and then you weigh it per pound. But I didn't know that. I thought it was free. It wasn't in a package. So I was just taking them. And, and I remember I just got, I got in so much trouble that day for stealing. But it stuck out to me because, you know, for me as a kid, it's like I truly, sincerely didn't know. But ignorance did not excuse my guilt. Stealing is still stealing. And so if on a human plane, we can understand that ignorance doesn't excuse guilt, how much more the just and holy God for him, ignorance doesn't excuse guilt. See, that's the thing about sin. It's not just about the few really bad things that you do. Sin is also about the things that you fail to do. Sin is also about the bad things that you don't mean to do. Sin is also about the things that you don't know you're doing. Ignorance does not excuse guilt. And when your understanding of sin becomes bigger than just my personal individual uh, sins, when, when your understanding of sin becomes bigger than just the conscious things that I am doing, when that actually begins to sink in, it really hurts our pride. It stings because I don't want to admit that things that I'm not responsible are part of my guilt. I don't want to admit that the things that I don't know I'm doing are part of my guilt. And yet, friends, it's this bitter understanding of your own sin in repentance that will only lead then to the sweetness of the good news in Jesus. You have to taste the bitterness of sin in all of its shapes, in all of its forms, to then be led to the refreshing sweet forgiveness there is in Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter's doing. He's exposing all of this sin, saying, you guys killed Jesus. And everyone's saying, oh no, because they understand, they recognize it. And then what does Peter do? He leads them to the gospel. This is our second point, the hope of repentance. Peter's good news is not, good news, you didn't know, but it's okay. God overlooks it. For Peter, the good news is when, because you didn't know, you accrued more and more condemnation upon yourself and the, st- the stains of your sin ran so deep when even that was true, God sent his one and only son to come and die, to take your punishment and by his shed blood, wash away those stains. You see, my mom, when she found out what I had done, she didn't come up to me and say, Andrew, it's okay. You didn't know. Now let's hurry up and leave. She said, Andrew, you didn't know. 
but stealing is stealing. And as a kid, you hear something like that, a charge that you've stolen, right? And I'm, <laughs> you know, you know that crying. <laughs> and you're getting so nervous. Until then, she says the good news, but it's okay. Because I'll pay for what you took. I'll pay the debt. Friends, you see, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what Peter is offering. He doesn't say, you know, the good news is God looks the other way. He's saying the good news is God excuses nothing. But there is also nothing that God won't excuse if you turn and look to Jesus. And that's why Peter is able to then offer before the congregation the hope of verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn. You see, repentance always requires two things. It requires turning away from sin and then turning to the sin bearer. Repentance is turning to the sin bearer, looking upon the Lamb of God who, t- who takes the sin of the world and believing that in him, your sins are blotted out. They're forgiven. They're erased. They're wiped away. They're no longer held against you, which is why sin, repentance must always be turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. That's what repentance is. Friends, listen to this. Repentance, repentance itself doesn't save you. Repentance is not your savior. Jesus saves. Jesus is your savior. Repentance then is trusting in the savior to save. Right? I, I feel because I've been so confused about this in my Christian life, and maybe some of you are too, where we begin to treat repentance as if repentance is the thing that saves. Because often we think of repentance as the good work that we bring before God for salvation. So God says, why should I forgive you? And you say, because I repented then repentance is your good works. Or we think that in repentance, I need to uh, reach a certain level of guilt. And once I feel this guilty enough, then God will forgive me. Or I need to self-loathe. I need to hate myself and be so disgusted at myself and my sin, at which point God will then look and forgive me. Oftentimes we think this, I haven't repented enough unless I've shed some tears or many tears. I need to reach some satisfactory level of a feeling worthless before God then forgives me. And if you believe that's what repentance is, you're looking at your repentance to be your savior. But repentance isn't that. Repentance is confessing your sin against God in order to then look upon your savior. The trust in Jesus. The reality is, you know, you can't look at both sin and your savior at the same time. Repentance is when you've looked at sin, you turn from sin and you look to the Savior. They are on opposite sides of the room. You cannot look at both at the same time. Your eyes can only look in one direction. You're not a fish. You're not looking at, you can't simultaneously look at both. So you look at sin and in your repentance, you turn to behold the Savior. So then repentance is not only admission and acknowledgement of your sin. Repentance must lead to an action, a turning away and looking upon Christ. Now imagine a husband is ordering something online and asks his wife, can you get my credit card to my wallet? And she goes and she's looking through his wallet to get the credit card, but she finds that deep and tucked into the wallet is a picture. And she pulls it out and to her surprise, it's not a picture of her. It's not a picture of their children. It's not a picture of his mother. Who is this woman I've never seen before? How many wives would then go to the husband and say, wow, she's really beautiful. I could see why you kept this picture. 
Nobody in their right mind. What would repentance then look like for the husband? All right, if we think repentance is acknowledgement, that's as if the husband goes, you're right. Yeah, that picture was in my wallet. Well, a duh, I found it in your wallet. Your acknowledgement doesn't do anything. What is repentance? Is it explanation? Well, honey, let me explain. It was there when I bought the wallet. Fool, you bought the wallet 10 years ago. What is repentance? Putting the picture back in the wallet and saying, well, I'll never look at it ever again. What is repentance? Shedding tears and saying, well, I'm really sorry that you're offended over this. What is repentance? Yes, it's admitting, acknowledging, I'm so sorry I did this wrong, but it leads to an action. A tearing up of the picture and inserting in that place a new picture, a picture of his wife and his family. True heart repentance is not simply hating yourself, beating yourself up, being disgusted at yourself, insulting yourself. Repentance is not just emotionalism. It's not sulking. It's not crying until you have no more water in your body. That's not repentance. Repentance is action-based, turning away from sin and turning to Christ. And then in turning to him, you're recognizing that all of your sins Right? Your individual sins, your corporate sins, your intentional sins, your ignorant sins, that those sins were then nailed on the cross to Jesus Christ as he died in your place, blotted out your sin. And he did this so that you wouldn't have to. See, friends, if there are any in this room who is hearing this, if you're not a believer, if you have never turned away from your sin and received Jesus, you can do that today. That's the hope of the gospel. That is the promise there is for us. And yet for those who are Christians who have said, well, I've done that already. Repentance is not just something you do once in your life and you're good and done. Repentance must become a daily exercise of the heart. Because I once looked and loved and lusted after sin. I repented. I turned to Christ. But my life is not walking and living in this direction always. My life is lived like this. And it's a constant looking back over at sin. And so repentance is a constant reorientation. Look to Christ. Turn from sin. Look to Christ. Turn from sin. Look to Christ. And in that, there is spiritual vitality and spiritual vigor because it leads to this benefit. And here's our last point, the promise of refreshment. The promise of refreshment. Peter continues, he says, repent and turn from your sin that your, uh, that your sins may be blotted out. But then he says this, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. You see, when, when, when Peter says, repent and turn that your sins may be blotted out, that's objective reality. Your sins are forgiven. They're paid in Christ. You owe nothing. What, whatever you feel about it doesn't change the fact that your sins are blotted out. That's objective. However, in our Christian lives, there's the subjective. There's the everyday experience of whether or not I feel forgiven. I understand my forgiveness. I live in the freedom of forgiveness. That's the time of refreshing that Peter is talking about. And the biggest gap in the Christian life is what you know to be true in your head and the truth you live by in your heart. That's the biggest gap that we have. And often when our lives are spiritually stagnant and lifeless, 
when we feel like we're going nowhere and our lives are spiritually dry, as we like to say, it's because we're not living in that gospel reality. The truth of Christ's forgiveness, the sins being blotted out, isn't touching down with your life. And so you're experiencing no time of refreshment. And that's why we use the expression, I'm spiritually dry. Because when you're dry, what are you looking for? You're looking for a time of refreshment. You know, when Peter talks about a time of refreshment, what he has in mind is a constantly used Old Testament image, right? Remember, this is the Middle East. It's hot out there, all desert land. And what we see happening, uh, for example, in like Isaiah 44, talking about this, this Middle Eastern dry, barren wasteland. It's parched. The sun is beating down on you. Think of Hagar who's out with Ishmael and the sun is coming down. There's no water. And she's thinking she's going to have to die and you're drained and you're depleted. That's what spiritual wilderness, spiritual dryness is like. But you don't, you don't even have to uh, live in the Middle East to get, to get that because we live in Philly and sometimes it's, you know, it's hotter than hell here. Where July afternoon, right? It's mean and muggy in Philly, not the people, the weather. And a few hours out in that sun and you are dripping in sweat and it's getting sticky on you. And what do you want to do? What are you longing for? You just want to get into a room with AC and drink an ice cold beverage of your age appropriate choice. You want to just splash cold water on your face. You want to put a cool towel on the back of your neck. What are you longing for? A time of refreshing. You see, what Peter's saying is, we feel, when we feel spiritually dry, what will lead to reinvigoration? The time of refreshing that comes through repentance. Because when you're parched spiritually, when you're, when you're shriveled up spiritually, as many have become during the coronavirus pandemic, you know what repentance is? Repentance is turning on the faucet so that the streams of God's mercy and grace will fill into you. When you're under scorching, the scorching accusations of the evil one, repentance is stepping indoors under the protection and the shade of God's loving kindness. When you're laboring hard under the heavy burden of guilt and shame, repentance is turning to Christ and asking him to take this heavy yoke and replace it with one that is light and easy. You see, God's intention for repentance is that it would lead to a time of refreshing. Why? Because through repentance, Christ meets you in your sin. You see, if you are spiritually not where you want to be, in a rut, you may say, you haven't moved in a while, you've plateaued, then let me just ask you this simple question. Is repentance a regular part of your life? And by repentance, I don't mean is apologizing. I don't mean admitting you're wrong. I don't mean saying you're sorry. I don't mean owning up to things. I don't mean thinking, oh, I did do a foolish thing. That's not what I mean by repentance. What I mean by repentance is confessing sin against God and then considering the son of God. Maybe it's not easy to admit when you've done some wrong. But it's a totally different thing to confess, God, I have sinned against you. And yet I look to the Son of God who forgives me. You see, because when repentance is not part of your everyday experience, what avenue do you have to then looking upon God and being refreshed and reminded of the sweetness of his grace and mercy to you? 
If you're not tasting the bitterness of sin, how will you ever taste the sweetness of God's delight over you that he sings a new song over you through Christ? Repentance is God's way of inviting you into that. Friends, only in the gospel are you able to confront your sin and then move on in joy. Because the reality is without the gospel, we're going to end up doing two things. Everyone does one of two things. One, your conscience is going to know that you have sin, and so you're going to pretend that you don't have sin. Or you're going to pretend the things that you do aren't so bad. And that's an exhausting work to try to pretend and cover up. The other thing of not pretending is performing. You're either going to perform, you're going to try to do a lot of good things to outweigh the bad things. And that's an exhausting work. See, without the gospel, we're left to two devices, pretending our sin isn't bad or performing and trying to be better than our sin. Both are exhausting. Only the gospel invites you to say, look, this is the reality of your sin. It is too great for you to handle. But look at Christ. He is greater than your sin. Only, the, only repentance that comes from the heart that is offered in Jesus Christ can do that for us. That's why God sent his son into the world. You know, verse 22 and, and following, P Peter basically says this. He says, don't you know Jesus was the one that Moses prophesied about? He says, don't you know that he's the one Samuel and all the prophets pro prophesied about? Don't you know that he's the one that Abraham was promised? And why is God saying that? He's saying the coming of the son was so that when you are called to repent, repentance isn't a spiritual buzzkill. Repentance is spiritual nourishment. Because in our brokenness and in our bitterness, we meet the savoriness, the sweetness, and the salvation that comes in Jesus. That's why repentance is a good thing. And so this week, as we, as we close, what would it look like if you made time this week, this every single day, just a time of that day to simply repent and look to Christ? What would happen if in your spiritual dryness, you turned on the faucet and the streams of God's mercy and grace pour down and you got to bathe in it. What difference would that make spiritually? If that happens, not only will you know your sins have been blotted out in Christ, but you will walk in a time of refreshment. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.